Please be seated. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6, which is the primary text for the sermon tonight. But let us pray for the Lord's work of illumination through his Holy Spirit into our minds and our hearts. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, you are the one that enlightens our hearts. You are the ones that help us to see and understand the spiritual truths that the natural eyes just cannot comprehend. So Lord, help us today. Holy Spirit, do your great work in helping us to understand who you are and your ways and give us a sense and a desire to be obedient sons and daughters, to be pleasing to your eyes. But these truths sometimes can be difficult to understand. Lord, help me to be able to accurately um, exposit your truths contained in these passages. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 6, but we will spend a good amount of time in chapter 5. Chapter 6, let us read. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. And this is verses 1 through 12, sorry. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, but of instruction about washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, to have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucified once again, are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt, For the land that has drunk the rain and has often falls upon it produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cursed, being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in in your case, beloved, be sure of better things, things that belong to salvation." For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of the hope until this end, so that we may so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In our sermon today, we are going to be addressing one of the most difficult questions that Christians have faced with and has, for some, has been incredibly perplexing. The question is this, can a genuine believer fall away after being saved by Christ? For many, Hebrews chapter 6 presents what many consider a clear answer that yes, we can fall away. But the evidence is not so clear. This is perplexing for many Christians. And the question is of particular urgency today. Because weekly we hear of, again, churches closing their doors, 
how many people no longer attend churches. They walk away. Even many churches, even denominations, are seeking cultural accommodation to the world and its beliefs at the expense of standing for doctrinal integrity, all to save the falling numbers of their congregations. It is my hope that as we take a more lucid examination of Hebrews 5 and 6, then the clear answer is an very unequivocal no, that a genuine Christian cannot fall away if they have genuinely, genuinely placed their trust in the person and work of Christ. This is not based on any new, uh, on the newly generated believer's ability or inability. It is based on Christ and his work. The true Christian will understand and rest secure in their salvation because of Christ and because of his work as our high priest. Our assurance of that salvation will also rest squarely on the sufficiency of Christ's vicarious work on the cross and the Father's acceptance of that work to satisfy the demands of his justice against our sins. What proves, <clears throat> excuse me, the salvation that we have seen and that we reflect on in our diligence to strengthen ourselves, that we pursue an increase in our knowledge of God and his word. We are called to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord with which we have been called, to pursue our upward calling of increased holiness in our lives, and to grow in our love for God, his church, his gospel, and our neighbors, and even all mankind. The Christian walk is one in which we go from milk to maturity through our pursuit of understanding the deeper things of God in his word beyond the elementary teaching. So here is a theme, if you want to tag a theme for this sermon. True disciples of Christ will persevere in their salvation with an assurance of their salvation as grounded in the person and work of Christ alone. Whereas false believers, though they may be found in the congregation of God's saints, will inevitably fall away, demonstrating both the absence of a newness of life and a penchant for false teachings. Anytime we see a section of scripture or a chapter that starts with the word therefore, which is what chapter 6 starts with, therefore. It is incumbent upon us to stop and look at the preceding section to understand the basis for why there is even a therefore in the first place without reading and understanding the substance of that which comes before the therefore, the conclusion, we will imperil our understanding. I know we tend to all want to read to the end to see what happens, but here we want to take our time. In the case here, we really should start reading from chapter 1 and go through chapter 5, but as I cannot preach to you for three hours tonight, we'll just stick with chapter 5. There are crucial elements here that we need to just cover and have a grasp on before we move to chapter 6. In chapter 5, we see a single-minded focus on Christ as our high priest and who serves as the sole source 
our, of our eternal salvation. When we understand Christ's role and work as high priest through faith, we will not only come to understand the supremacy and sufficiency of his role as our Savior, but we will also it will also birth in us a greater and abiding desire for growth and perseverance against all obstacles and difficulties in life. In short, the role of the priest is to stand before God and man where he is called to offer up prayers, gifts, to make sufficient sacrifices for the sins of the people. As we look in verses 1 through 9, we see that a high priest is appointed, even called. We look at Aaron as well, that he was also appointed. Christ was called to be a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek in chapter, uh, verse 5 and 6. But in that role of him being a high priest, notice that he had to start in the form of a man. Another reason why he came to be amongst us. And through being a man, Christ was beset with the weaknesses of what it means to be human. Yet in his role as high priest throughout his entire life, he did priestly activities. He offered up prayers and supplications, but yet we also, he also learned obedience. He offered himself in suffering, and he was made perfect. Now, that does not mean Christ was not perfect to begin with. Christ is God. That's absolutely right. But we are talking about that when he came to be human and for him to be qualified as our high priest, these are the things that the Father required of him. Christ qualified himself, and this is, this is crucial to understand. Christ qualified himself not only to be the acceptable high priest before the Father, but also the very acceptable sacrifice itself. Do you grasp that? He played two roles here. He is the priest, and he is the sacrifice of the priest. He is the lamb without blemish, spot. Itself satisfies the demands of God's law for our sin, our condemnation under the wrath of God. He was oppressed. This is something that Isaiah foresaw, Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open up his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before cheers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And this was the very same thing that John realized when he was baptizing and he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I remember being at that spot. It's actually in Jordan, about 400 yards. I know many, I hope many of you went and were baptized in the Jordan River uh, between Israel and Jordan. Uh, but the actual baptism, that's the traditional baptism site. Um, but the actual baptism site is about 400 yards inside Jordan. We read in John chapter 1, verse 29, that Jesus went to where John was baptizing in Bethany beyond the Jordan. But it was, it was a little tributary spring that when it would rise up, it would flow into the Jordan River itself. But this is something that John saw. And I remember standing there thinking of this particular verse. 
What did John see? Can you imagine the motion of the moment? This is it. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is crucial. We need to recognize that Christ, as our high priest, is sufficient. And his sacrifice, as the Lamb of God, is also sufficient for the propitiation of our sins. His perfect righteousness is all that is required for our eternal salvation. And that can only be received by faith alone. This activity of interceding for us, for the Father, is something which Christ continues to do for us until this day. Remember, when he was called to be the high priest, he was called to be the high priest for sinners forever. Hebrews 7, just a few chapters over, says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8, 34, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. At this moment, Christ is still interceding for you and for me. But we have a warning here that he's talking to the Hebrew audience here in this book. Whoever the author is, and there's some debate, but the audience is distinctly a Hebrew congregation. We look in verses 11 through 14, and let me read that. About this time, about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the very basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice and distinguishing good from evil. These are the Hebrews he is speaking to. They, of all people, should understand the role of the high priest. That, that has been in effect since they were in the desert. The, the Israelis were in the desert. When Moses was living, they were, well, go back to Abraham. This is the role of all people that should have noticed. You, you ever experienced with someone or Fortunately, maybe one of us, there'd be a time when someone's like, you're supposed to know this already. (laughs) And you don't. But as Christians, we need to know this too. How long have we been walking with the Lord? And in some ways, we don't understand. Folks, here's here's a, let me give you a snapshot of the key ahead. When we don't understand Christ's role and activity as our great high priest, we are susceptible to making the wrong interpretation found in Hebrews chapter 6, thinking that we can lose our salvation. Because if it's not 
satisfied in Christ's work on the cross, him as our high priest, then yes, your salvation rests on you. Do you see that? Folks, there is great gain to be found in pursuing a study of Jesus as our prophet, our priest, and as our king. He is our prophet as he is the one who has revealed himself to us and is found on every page of Scripture. He is the one who reveals the Father to us. He is our high priest as he makes intercession for you and for me. And he is our king because he rules and reigns in all eternity. Nothing happens unless he decides it happens. But for our purpose here, we need to straighten out and really have a good grasp on Jesus as our high priest before we even touch chapter 6. The situation is dire here for these Hebrews. He rebukes them that they ought to be teachers at this point, but instead they are really nothing but babes. In fact, they need retraining. This is a sharp rebuke, and it seems to indicate that there exists a real problem in his audience. And folks, may I submit today, this is also a real problem in the church today. R.C. Sproul, I had several classes with him, and, you know, if you ever heard R.C. in his videos or, you know, even his television or uh, radio, you'll know he doesn't pull any punches. And I remember he mentioned something like this, but this quote I'm going to share with you is found in a book, but it's something we all need to heed. He said, here then is the real problem and source of our negligence. We fail in our duty to study God's Word, not so much because it is difficult to understand, not so much because it is dull and boring, but because it is work. Our problem is not a lack of intelligence, nor a lack of passion. Our problem is that we're lazy. As a result, God's Word tells us that our minds are not accustomed, meaning lacking experience or ability to rightly understand the word of God and the word of righteousness. The chastisement in this passage bears a striking fulfillment of an earlier exhortation in which the author of Hebrews issued in chapter 2 concerning those who would neglect the word of God in their lives in, in two ch- verse 1. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Many Christians persistently suffer doubts and crippling uncertainties, a lack of joy in their walk. It's a consequence of weak faith, which has been not been strengthened because they have neglected God's word and prayer, their personal discipline, attendance in the church. They deny themselves the real spiritual benefit of the ordinary means of grace and communion, worship, fellowship with the other saints. Yet they are nonetheless saved as their salvation, again, guess what? Depends on the person of Christ and the work of Christ on the cross. You can be a weak Christian. 
That needs to change, but that doesn't mean your salvation, the status changes. Everything depends upon Christ being our high priest and his sacrifice of himself on the cross and the Father's acceptance of that sacrifice as an atonement for our sins. When that veil was torn in two, right there sealed the deal. And the victory over death came when Christ rose away from the dead. So now let's go into chapter 6, and we talk about foundations. Foundations are essential for everything in life and in this world. How much more are foundations important for spiritual truths? Foundations demand a further building on top of them. A foundation is useless alone. You ever see a uh, development? We have a development going in behind us. We're really grieved about this. We had beautiful woods behind us, but yeah, someone sold a property and there you go. But what if they just poured a foundation and they left it there for like a year? What would you think? What would I think? Someone didn't count the cost. Someone got lazy. Whatever the reason, foundations are essential, yet foundations cannot be replaced. Nor can they be neglected as they require continual attention and inspection. When we came back from Scotland two years ago, one of the things I did was crawl up underneath my house and look at the pier foundation, the piers of my foundation. And what we found out was that there was a moisture level that was too high, and so we took care of that, and we had termite control come in. But we wanted to make sure that we continually revisit the foundational things in our life because our entire house depends on it. We need, from time to time, to revisit foundational teachings of Scripture, lest we forget them. You know, the church, let me give you one example that our denomination has had to deal with, and that is the whole issue of homosexual affections. Right now, there's a good portion, and we've been fighting it, and everyone's been going, but there are a good number of pastors in the PCA who think homosexual affections are not sinful. And they're allowing, as long as you remain celibate, you're fine. You, you can keep your homosexual affections. You can identify as a homosexual. As long as you remain celibate, you're fine. Folks, oh, that's just absolute nonsense. But one of the things I found out in talking to these individuals is when I talked about repentance, he had no idea what it is. That's one of the things here that God's Word says we need to, from time to time, look at again, yet we need to move on from there. But he thought repentance was, I just don't touch. Repentance includes what they call mortification, which means we seek to put our sinful desires to death. This is the point where you say, amen. Okay, good. Just make sure. <laughs> I mean, if any pastor stood in a pulpit and said, you know what, I have these wild, ugly affections, and you know, but they're okay, I'm going to keep them, but I just promise not to touch. Do you think that guy should be a pastor? I don't. There's no way he should be. But yet that's the problem we have. And here's another enlightening fact. I talked to several major evangelical publishers, even Reformed, 
And I found out that the last time someone wrote a substantive work on repentance in this country or even this world was 21 years ago. And three of these major publishers had no interest in publishing a book on it. And I thought, do, do we understand why we have no idea what, re, what repentance is or what it's not? We're just confirming what Hebrews is teaching us. And that has to change. We have to be diligent people. Why would we not want to understand what God is doing through us? But let's go on to those. Well, let's go to Hebrews 6. He says, therefore, let us leave these elementary doctrines of Christ and, and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance, dead works, and faith of God, of instructions of washing, laying out of hands, and resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Hold it right there. We give attention to the elementary teachings, but we also move on from the elementary teachings, always revisiting them, always using them as we move on and learn the deeper things of Christ. But watch what happens here, and this gets to the heart of our text. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God in the powers of the age to come, and then to fall away is impossible to rest- impossible to restore them to repentance again, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him in contempt. There are some dangerous words there. Many Christians tend to think, oh my goodness, I see myself in those things right there. Maybe we've thought of that ourselves. I mean, when you, when you look at these things, you know, did I not taste the heavenly gift? Have I, have I not shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of God's Word, the powers of the age to come? How many of you know of people who have been to church and after a certain number of months or weeks or even years, they go away? And you talk to them later and they just left church. And you'll hear things like, well, I moved on in life. Or maybe, well, that was just a certain phase I needed to get me by. I knew a woman like that one time. And I was like, how can you get past that and call yourself a Christian. And of course, you're at the bid, bidding of the, war, the world and it, what it teaches. But notice there are two things we need to see here. There are two key shifts in the text here. In verses 4, for it is impossible in the case of those once enlightened. First, notice the shift in pronouns. Those who have fallen away No longer is he saying you, as he did in verses 1 through 3, but of of those who have fallen away, not if they fall away. That is significant. He's talking about a different group of people, church. He's talking about those who have left the church, have no desire to come back, It's almost like Christ was never a part of their life. It was a phase. 
He's talking about a different group of people, folks, than those who are believers, than those who trust in Christ and worship Christ and seek God in his word. That should bring us a good measure of consolation that we don't have to worry about that maybe he's talking about me. He's talking about others, unfortunately. And notice that there is really a terrible judgment here. It is impossible, he says, for them to be restored again to repentance. Which means God himself is saying, I'm going to let them go themselves. Because they can only come to repentance if Christ knocks on their door. That is a terrifying judgment. In verse 8, he says, if, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Of those who fall away, again, tasting heavenly gift, made partakers of the Holy Spirit. But who exactly is he talking about right here? Well, again, he was, he's talking to the Hebrews. He's not only talking about to the people in the first century there, he's also refreshing their mind to the Exodus. How many people came out of Egypt? Millions. How many people came out of Egypt? Two. (laughs) Now, that doesn't mean people like Aaron and Moses weren't saved. I remember standing roughly on the spot of Mount Nebo where Moses was looking over and seeing the promised land, land flowing with milk and honey. And I thought, oh, so close. But it was God's plan and his judgment that he was not to go. But we remember throughout the Exodus, how many times did the people rebel? And God brought serious judgment upon them. And many of them perished. He's trying to draw their attention that you have lived in a community and amongst the people, you've seen people walk away from the Lord and have perished as a result of this just as the Israelis did when they came out of Egypt and spent 40 years in that desert. But he's also saying to the Hebrews, you know people like that today too. This is a part of our human sinful condition. And so he is referring to those. He wants the people to learn. It's a hard truth. But sometimes experience is the best teacher, and you can't teach experience. Maybe these were members that we know who were duped in thinking that just because they were members, just because they were baptized, just because they tasted the Lord's Supper, maybe they went to Bible conferences, or maybe they generally witnessed God's changing power in the lives of others, that they're saved. Y'all know that, right? Not everyone sitting in a church pew is saved. I I hope everyone here is. But you remember when we guard the table, fence the table, we issue a warning because that's scriptural. If you're not a Christian or if you're under discipline, do not partake. You will bring judgment upon yourself. This is a meal for God's people, for God's community. It is a powerful 
means of grace. But now let's look at the shift in the last three verses, verses 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we are sure of better things. What just happened there? He's now talking to them again. Look at the shift in the pronoun. He's not saying them anymore. He's saying you. And guess what he calls them? Beloved. There's a term of endearment and affection there. It is a familial term. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you do. And we desire that each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of the hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises." He's not talking about believers, folks, in that section, verses 4 through 8. He's talking about those who used to be a part of our midst have walked away. And we're saddened by that. We want people to come. But what's also communicated in this passage is if we are Christians and we are in this pew and we suffer at times of doubt and anxiety and stuff like that, we have a responsibility to pursue a greater knowledge and understanding of God through His Word, our place in His kingdom at this time. We need to pursue growing in our spiritual disciplines, you know, pursuing a a walk of holiness, uh, learning to love God, our neighbor, all those things, especially Ephesians 4 we talked about. We are called to grow. Some of, many of you are parents, if your baby only drank milk and your, your, your baby's now 16 years old and still drinking milk, there's a problem. Christians, why do we think that it's any different for us? We need to be those who pursue everything God would have for us to help us grow, to have us be restored in the image of God in us through our union with Christ. But we find in us, in all of us, a penchant to negligence. So let me leave you with three quick points of application. The first is that there is a critical need for all of us to pursue our understanding and to see Christ as our high priest that even now he is making intercession for us. The failure to understand Christ as our high priest will inevitably result in the type of questioning people have regarding their faith that for some, they walk away. Two, we need to seek to possess a personal knowledge of Christ and a genuine trust in him. Folks, that is the core of God's image in us is our mind and our understanding, our will and our affections. 
This knowledge is more, though, than just mental understanding of Christian doctrines, as important as they are. But we need to find the, what does it mean to have a true saving knowledge of Christ? What are the results? How ought this to affect my life? You know, Thomas Watson, one of my favorite Puritan authors, he read about 30 years ago in his book, Godly Man's Picture, he wrote, the hypocrite is the most hated person on the planet. The wicked hate the hypocrite because he's almost a Christian. But God hates him because he's only almost a Christian. And third, we seek to understand what a true assurance of salvation looks like in our Christian walk. And then we need to pursue growing in that discipline through our attendance to church, our fellowship, prayer, study of God's Word, sitting underneath the preaching of God's Word. Notice that one of the things in Hebrews 5 at the end he talked about is neglecting the ministry of pastors, of ministers that he has sent to feed God's sheep. Let us not be among those. Let us use tonight as a time to refresh and renew our pursuit of belonging to a gospel-preaching congregation, one that is faithful to the Scriptures, faithful to the ordinary means of grace that we practice each and every time. We're devoted to fellowship and growing in holiness and in our love for God, for fellow Christians, and for other people. Amen? Okay. Let's see, where's my...